Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look at how snow and winter rain affects Arizona's water sources. Southern Arizona has received quite a bit of rain and snow lately. In the past six months, rain gauges monitored by the National Weather Service's Tucson office show precipitation totals are, on average, nearly an inch above where they'd typically be. When it comes to snow, the National Weather Service reported earlier this month that Tucson had officially received an inch and a half of snow this season, more than Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia combined to that point. As a result of that snow and rain, about a third of the state is now in moderate drought or abnormally dry. At this time last year, those classifications covered all of the state. The moisture is good news for plants and wildlife, but what does it mean for the system humans use for moving and storing water? How are depleted rivers, reservoirs, and aquifers doing after a bout of wet weather? We start by looking at the system that stores snowmelt from mountains in the state's north and east. The Salt River Project manages a system that provides water to much of central Arizona while also providing electricity to part of the Phoenix area. SRP announced recently that it is expecting so much of that water as the weather warms that it will need to release some of what it already has into reservoirs along the Verde River. Bo Svoma is a meteorologist with SRP. I started by asking him how recent rain and snowmelt-induced flooding on the Verde would affect those releases. So when we started spilling earlier in March, uh, there, were no, there were no rainfall events on the horizon, and there was a lot of snowpack up on the Verde River watershed. Um, in fact, when it peaked in early March, the snowpack was the biggest it had been since 1993. Um, when, when we were up there the week before, or last week as a matter of fact, in spots we measured almost 20 inches of snow water equivalent, um, which is equivalent to two monsoon seasons worth of rainfall. So with that much snow up there, we were confident that the Verde River Reservoir system would fill and we could go ahead and be cautious and, and make a little more room in the reservoir. So we started low level releases and that's generally been three to 4,000 cubic feet per second. Uh, now, the exception is that in the last 24 hours, the Verde River is, is flowing much more than it ever would with just snow melt because of rainfall generated runoff, and uh, releases are going to have to be increased um, as a result of that. Right. We saw a U.S. geological survey uh, measurement on the Verde overnight at 20,000 cubic feet per second near Clarkdale. A year ago, that was 70 cubic feet per second, you know, same time of year. How do you prepare for that? Well, we prepare for it by one, forecasting the weather. This storm definitely came in strong. So far, these types of flows were, were expected. But what we did to prepare, uh, other than forecast the weather, and is start those low-level releases earlier in March. If we didn't start those low-level releases earlier in March, we wouldn't have the amount of space available in Bartlett and Horseshoe Reservoirs. Um, so it's gonna be much easier to manage this flood because we're gonna be able to capture a good chunk of it in uh, Bartlett Reservoir and Horseshoe Reservoir. So what happens downstream during a release like this? Is there habitat that benefits or damaged or, you know, 
after you let that water go. Right. So, so low level releases, like the ones you've been doing until this rain event, um, they, it, you know, I'd say it's all, it's all benefits because those, that level of releases really doesn't damage infrastructure in the river channel. Uh, it just closes unbridged crossings temporarily. Um, and then the benefit would be habitat for sure, but also that water is soaking into the salt river channel and recharging the aquifer um, that we pump from. So, it, you know, those low level releases is pretty much all benefit. Now, when you get to uh, the higher level releases, um, there's going to be some culverts that are, that are, you know, trying our best, but uh, you know, some culverts might be damaged. Uh, unbridged crossings might be damaged. Uh, and then you, know, you get higher and higher flows through the salt river. You got to be more careful with communication with the public and the danger of, of being in that river channel, just because uh, there's more flow than there has been the last couple of weeks. So we communicate with a lot of groups internally and externally, emergency management offices, um, ADOT, um, National Weather Service coordination to make sure that we handle these flows uh, the best way possible. So with the amount of water that's now coming down, uh, especially after this big storm, what would happen if you all didn't do the releases? Would dams be overflowing or other problems? Yeah, that's the concern. If if we didn't do the low level releases, we would have had to have been releasing a lot more right now already because of this rain event to make to make space in the Verde River reservoirs. So the goals of protecting as much infrastructure as possible on the Salt River would have been out the door a long time ago if we hadn't been making those releases earlier in March. In terms of overtopping dams, you know, where we're very experienced with these types of storms, even during this long term drought. Uh, there's been several wet winters where we had to manage floods even bigger than this. And, and it was done so without, uh, you know, compromising the integrity of the dam. So we have a lot of experience with this. But of course, um, the thing you want to avoid the most is dam failure with the reservoirs filling up uh, at a too high of a level. Um, that's the number one thing to avoid. Are the downstream dams, like for the one that creates Tempe Town Lake that so many are familiar with, uh, are they going to have to do similar releases uh, or do they have space for what's coming? Tempe Town Lake is meant to be able to just pass these flows at these levels um, and, uh, and, and keep Tempe Town Lake at a relatively constant elevation. And it's not storing a lot of water anyways. So um, when you talk about giant flows in a salt, river compromising Tempe Town Lakes Dam, a collapse of it wouldn't really be a problem at that point because the Salt River would be flowing so much anyways. So the Tempe Town Lake and Granite Reef Diversion Dam are not like the big storage reservoirs upstream like Bartlett and Stewart Mountain or Saguaro and, and Roosevelt Lake and Horseshoe, all that. Those are much bigger uh, volumes of water stored behind those dams. You mentioned those others like Saguaro and places like that. Are they hitting a point where they're going to have to do releases also? Or due to the drought, are they low enough that, hey, bring that water in? Oh, so we're we're filling up this this winter for sure. Um, on, on the lower salt reservoirs like Canyon Lake, Apache Lake, and Saguaro Lake, the normally dry or very low flow creeks going into those lakes, um, during storms like we just had, they uh, they start to uh, contribute inflow into those reservoirs, and those reservoirs do end up rising fast, and measures have to be taken. 
one measure that's taken is you can pump with the with the power generation infrastructure you can pump back up to higher reservoirs to make room so we don't have to spill any water from the lower salt reservoirs um, but at times when there's no other option a little bit of spill happens from the lower salt reservoirs but it's not like what's happening on the verde perhaps more interestingly is roosevelt lake the big reservoir on our system that has um, 16 times the storage capacity as horseshoe lake on the on the verde so uh, that that's going to fill up completely um, this winter from all the snow melt uh, snow melt that will happen and the fact that the salt river is already flowing a lot and we're likely going to get up in the flood control space there but if we do since it's flood control space we have a lot of control over that water and it would be released in a much uh, more controlled manner even if there was a really intense inflow flood event that flood control space allows us to spill from the salt in a much more controlled manner than we would on the verde so in a few weeks from now we may be having uh, interesting conversations on the salt but they're not going to be um like they are on the verde just because that flood control space makes it so easy to manage the floods so talking uh, about Roosevelt, for example, and really all of these, it sounds like in the end, this is good news. Lots of water coming in, raising the levels to where they should be. Uh, but I'm guessing that doesn't mean everybody can go out and just leave the hose running uh, to flood irrigate their yards. Right, exactly. I mean, the Phoenix metropolitan area has three uh, separate water supplies. It's groundwater and Colorado River water and water from the Salt and the Verde River reservoirs that we've been talking about. And it's good to know where your water comes from, but I think it's also good to know that you're part of a broader community that lives in an arid area and some people's water resources in a different situation, like, like Lake Mead being in a different situation than the Salt and the Verde River reservoirs. So it's, it's definitely good to know that we're living in an arid environment and uh, be responsible with your water use no matter where you get your water from. Um, but it is important to note that the Phoenix metropolitan area has a very diverse water supply. And um, as the Salt and Verde River Reservoir is the single largest supply of water to the valley. And we're 100% we're full um, in a few weeks from now. So that's good news. You mentioned earlier pumping water back up to some of the higher um, reservoirs which kind of raised in my mind the question of hydroelectric power. Do any of these dams have hydroelectric so yes. even better? <laughs> That's exactly right. So the lower salt dams have hydropower. And when you uh, release water from a higher elevation reservoir to a lower, it goes through a turbine and generates power. But then, like I mentioned earlier, with handling um, floods into the lower salt reservoirs like Canyon Lake, um, a strategy is to pump back up to Apache Lake, for instance. Um, but you're exactly right. When you have um, a lot of water flowing downhill through the lower salt reservoirs for for quite some time, like which will be happening and happens every summer. Every summer we're delivering out of the salt. So we're generating power as we're delivering water from Roosevelt Lake. Um, that's definitely a benefit of having to move all this water downhill. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to do so. Huh? Thanks for having me. That was Bo Sfoma, a meteorologist with the Salt River Project. After our interview, we checked peak discharge for the Verde River this week. 
It exceeded 20,000 cubic feet per second late Wednesday and into early Thursday. To put that in context, that number is about the same as the peak measurement in the last year for the Colorado River as it flowed into the Grand Canyon. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at what a strong snow and rain season means for Arizona's drought. While the major rivers that carry water from the state's mountainous regions often have dams on them in order to store the water that flows through them, the smaller, often seasonal rivers and waterways that carry snowmelt from the Sky Islands often flow with notably less restrictions. We headed out to one such waterway this week, Tucson's Rieto River, to meet up with Dr. Joel Biderman. He's a U.S. Department of Agriculture hydrologist who studies the state's snowpack. I started by asking him where water from Sky Islands, particularly the Santa Catalina Mountains, ends up. Our snowpack tends to, to melt either into the, the, the fractured bedrock up in the mountain, uh, where it can either percolate to the foot of the mountain and then enter the aquifer uh, beneath our feet here in Tucson. Uh, or it may, uh, a lot of it may also uh, hit solid bedrock at the foot of the mountain and re-emerge into streams uh, like the Rito here. And from there, as we see this water flowing by in the Rito, uh, if we went downstream from where we are here at the Campbell Bridge, if we go down to La Choya, all this water has disappeared. And really what, what our situation is here with this snowmelt water is that the portion of it that reaches the stream uh, is infiltrating. So it's sinking through the sand and the gravel in the base of our of our washes here and recharging the aquifer that way. Uh, little to none of this water will actually make it in the surface downstream to the Santa Cruz and then up to the Gila and eventually out to the Colorado River. That may have happened a, a long time ago in, in wetter times uh, when there was less withdrawal. Uh, but really what we're seeing now is the importance of snowmelt for focused recharge in our, in our washes uh, of the aquifer. But that's good news. Even though it doesn't go to the Colorado, our aquifers are important to us. So recharge is a good thing. Absolutely, recharge is a good thing. Here in Tucson, from a municipal water standpoint, uh, we're nearly 100% focused on wells, bringing groundwater out of our aquifer. Uh, the two main sources of that are the kind of recharge from the mountains that we just talked about, and Central Arizona Project uh, water that's been delivered here since the late 90s. Uh, both of those are recharging our aquifer, and that's what we rely on. Snowpack might be, to people who are new here, an odd concept for southern Arizona, but where you and I are standing just a couple of weeks ago, we had an inch and a half to two inches of snowfall stick for a few hours and then disappear. But so many of the mountains still have snow. Or do we have an odd snowpack year here in southern Arizona? Uh, definitely, this is the biggest snowpack that I can remember since, I want to say, 2010. Uh, and my colleagues up at the Salt River Project have told me that in, in the Verde River and parts of the Salt, they're seeing the biggest snowpack since 1983, uh, very wet year. Uh, so it is, it is wet, but our climate is highly variable here. We get very major changes in weather from one year to another, just like we might have a 2020 monsoon with one inch of rainfall and the 2021 monsoon uh, with, with the biggest we'd seen on records. 10 to 12 inches in places, winter snowpack can do the same here. Is there anything that needs to be done infrastructure-wise to help us retain, I mean, obviously the heat comes up, the snow melts, but retain that precipitation? Or 
is the system, the natural system working the way it should? I mean, one of the great things about snowpack is that it offers us a free reservoir high up in the mountains. I was originally trained as a civil engineer, and when we think about water infrastructure, the best water is the water that we have at the highest elevation because then we can, we can release it downstream maybe to another reservoir or to a city or a farm or to use for recharge of groundwater. And snow gives us the highest elevation reservoirs that we have in the west. So it is a concern uh, that over the last five decades or so, we've seen consistent warming winters, a couple of degrees Fahrenheit, two to four degrees Fahrenheit since the 1970s. That's translated to some of that snow that used to fall, now falling as rain. Uh, so we have thinner snowpacks and in places where they used to be stable, that is to say, they'd, they'd fall and accumulate all the snowstorms between December and March, and then melt all at once in the spring. Uh, we're now seeing increased prevalence of ephemeral snowpacks. So just like the Ritos an ephemeral stream, the snowpacks on Mount Lemmon are typically uh, ephemeral. They come, they go, they may disappear completely or just partially. And one of the things we're really uh, trying to focus on with current research is how do we study, how do we measure both the dynamics of those ephemeral snowpacks and what happens to that water. Uh, we're used to thinking about snow melt all at once in March or April, but what happens if we have a rain event with an atmospheric river like has been pounding California and then reaching over here into Arizona? Sometimes we're getting big rain events on top of our snowpack. That warm rain melts the snow in January or February. Uh, we don't have the science well established to know what happens to that water. Does it hang around in the soil sponge for the forest and other vegetation to use in the spring? Does it reduce fire risk the following summer? Uh, or because things are cold and the trees aren't really active in the winter, uh, is that water increasing our groundwater recharge? It sounds like from a recharge natural system standpoint, snowpack is better than a good rain. So there's a, a decade or two of history on studying that specific question here in Tucson. Uh, Tom Meixner and Jen McIntosh have really been in leaders in this. And what they've found is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we really get focused recharge when we can get water here into the valley in these washes. This is where the water between here and downstream where the water disappears, this is where we really get the recharge. So there are two main ways we can get water into the stream, and we've experienced both of them above average amount in the last year. Uh, the first way is the one we're looking at here, which is a large enough snowpack that's melting continuously enough that it overwhelms the capacity of the soil. If we're standing up in Mount Lemon in the headwaters of Lemon Creek or Sabino Creek, and we're standing on top of maybe a three feet thick layer of soil, and then below that is bedrock, that soil's like a sponge. And if we can wet that sponge enough, just like a sponge in your sink, then water will start to drip out the bottom. And when water drips out the bottom of the soil and encounters bedrock, it comes by one way or another down here to the valley and ends up in the stream. So traditionally when we had snow accumulate, all the snowfalls during the winter and then melt all at once, that was an almost guaranteed way to overwhelm that sponge and get water into the streams. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, with ephemeral snowpacks, sometimes those melt events are large enough to do that, and sometimes they're not. They just wet the sponge, and then it's warm, so the vegetation roots withdraw it. The other way to get that amount of water that we get runoff in the stream is through a large rain event or a sequence of large rain events. Uh, we saw that during the monsoon. That can happen from overwhelming the sponge and the water dripping out the bottom, or it can rain so hard that the water runs off laterally before it can even enter the soil sponge. 
So any of those mechanisms that can get a significant amount of water flowing in our, in our washes can be beneficial for groundwater recharge. I'm not monitoring it, uh, but I live right by the Rito. It seems to me it's been flowing for a long time. It's down to almost a trickle now, I might say, but it's still flowing. As you said, by the time we get to La Choya, it's gone. It, am I just being hopeful or is it actually flowing more than usual? I haven't looked at the data, but I have lived also near, near here for the last dozen years. And this, the last summer, uh, 2022, uh, the summer before that, and this winter have really been fantastic, just in terms of, of getting down here and observing the flow. I did look up the data this morning upstream from us at the Dodge uh, Avenue Bridge. The USGS gauge was reporting 55 cubic feet per second. It's probably half that where we're standing here at Campbell. And down at La Choya, there's no surface flow at all anymore. That disappeared uh, two days ago was the last surface flow there. So I did a little back of the envelope calculation. 55 cubic feet per second flowing at the Dodge Bridge that's all disappearing into the aquifer works out to about 400 gallons per second or 1.5 million gallons per hour. So just today, that's about 35 million gallons. Uh, so that's a substantial amount of water. It's not enough to alleviate uh, a drought condition, but when we look at this river the last few weeks, it's been flowing at several hundred cubic feet per second, uh, and we scale that up, it's an appreciable amount of water entering the aquifer from this, this winter's combined snow and rain. Well, thanks for coming out on a drizzly morning, another one. Uh, yeah. Uh, here at the Rito with us. Yeah, well, I'm really appreciating every every bit of rain we can get because this is mid-March here. We're probably getting to about the end of, of our rain and uh, never know. It could be a summer like uh, like the last two or it could be like 2020 where we, we don't see the rain again until November. That was USDA research hydrologist Dr. Joel Biderman. We end today's show with the Colorado River. States in the river's basin are losing their allotment of its water as its major reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell, come dangerously close to dead pool levels. To see how a wet winter has affected the region's largest river, we spoke with Dr. Kathy Jacobs, a University of Arizona professor and director of the Center for Climate Adaptation Science and Solutions. I started our conversation by asking her how much of Arizona's rain and snow ends up in the Colorado River. The vast majority of the water in the Colorado River really comes from the upper basin states, um, from Colorado, Wyoming, Utah. We don't get much water into the Colorado River through the state of Arizona. So not much of it's going to really help from that perspective, but it's enormously helpful inside the state to have those reservoirs full. So how are the upper basins doing? How's skiing in Colorado this year uh, and other places? Are they getting, as we are, it seems like a lot of snow? Yes, I think the snow in pretty much all the western states is very high right now. I heard the snowpack in California was 190% of normal. And I have also heard that it's about the highest it's ever been in Utah. So it is a good year for snowpack. So it's a good year. We should all celebrate, go out, plant grass. Water are those new lawns constantly. Probably not a good idea. But how much does a good year make up for all the drought we've been having and all the lack of water issues in the Colorado system? 
Well, it really depends what scale you're looking at. Um, within local basins, this rainfall and snow makes a huge difference. We're going to see an increase in soil moisture. It's going to be a much better year for agriculture. Local reservoirs are full in many cases, including in Arizona. That being said, we have a long-term deficit here, and it's going to take way more than one year to make up that deficit, particularly in the Colorado River, which those reservoirs are designed to hold four full years of water supply. And it will take way more than four years of wet years to fill them. They're nearly empty. They're at 25% right now. So the bathtub rings at Lake Powell and Lake Mead aren't going away in April when that snow finally all melts. <laughs> no, we'll be very lucky if we get a, you know a significant increase in water levels. We'll certainly not get anywhere near even half full this year. Um, it will take many years to get to a place where the reservoirs are really refilling. Every drop counts, of course, but does that really give us any breathing room or do we still need to keep doing what we're doing and what we're talking about doing in the future? There is no doubt that we are going to have a hotter, drier future. Um, that's on average. That doesn't mean that every year will be hotter and drier, but it on average, that's what matters, especially for the reservoirs of the Colorado River. So we have to keep pressuring government officials and others to keep moving towards these outcomes because a wet year is not going to solve this problem, and we can't let the public think it is either. You bring up an interesting point. We can't let the public think that one year fixes all the problems. How do we make sure that the demeanor of the public under, continues to understand that this is still a drought despite seeing all the the snow on the mountains. It's drizzling on and off today as you and I speak. How do we keep that in the public mind when what they're seeing may tell a different story? It is really difficult uh, to communicate what's going on here, but we need to understand we have groundwater basins across the West that have been being overdrafted for decades now. Um, so this is not just about the Colorado River and its reservoirs. This is about the deficit in the Central Basin for California, the deficit across Arizona. There are many decades of overdrafting that have been going on, and it's just going to take way more than that than a single wet winter to fix those problems. That isn't what the public sees, and so that is a very challenging education problem you know, people see, oh, it's raining, it's snowing, the drought's over, it's all great, and we don't need to conserve anymore. And that's absolutely not true. Um, we are seriously overdrafting our groundwater basins. We've been using far more Colorado River water than is coming into the reservoirs. And that's an ongoing problem. It's not a, a one-year problem. You mentioned groundwater. And of course, when we talk about water issues, the Colorado River takes up so much of that conversation, but it doesn't supply all the water even for Arizona. Cochise County uh, doesn't get Colorado River water. They have aquifers and things like that. So that's part of what you're saying on the education. It isn't just Cochise County. Forty percent of the total water supplies for the state of Arizona come from groundwater. And so this is an issue for the whole state, not just the rural counties 
that are not connected to the Colorado River through the Central Arizona Project. Um, but it's also an issue for the environment. Clearly, um, there have been devastating impacts already, and those will continue on average. But wet years help a lot for relieving the pressure on ecosystems. Thanks for spending some time with us. No problem. That was University of Arizona professor Dr. Kathy Jacobs. And that's The Buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at Arizona's growing wine industry. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larned and Phil Howard. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.